0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, we thank you uh, so much for uh, your book. Lord, we thank you for this this particular story. Lord, we thank you for the picture that it paints, how easy it is to understand, um, and how much without excuse we walk away from this story with. Lord, I pray that you would guide our conversation tonight, that you would lead us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. So I guess the second night that we were doing the, the, um, the study, one of the questions was that someone asked was, was the angel of death that uh, we see uh, here in the Passover a good angel or a demon? And I told them, wait, we'll come back to that. We'll get there. We're here. In fact, in the British Library, they define the Passover this way. The heartless Pharaoh still refused to free the Israelite slaves. So God brought about one last plague, which was so terrible that it was certain to persuade Pharaoh to let his slaves go. That night, God sent the angel of death to kill the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. So an a academic book refers to this angel as the angel of death. Our brother here asked the question, so let's look at the story. We said where God's word is silent, we're silent, and when we want to know the answer to the question, we'll go to the text. And so what, we start out in uh, Exodus chapter 11, and the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterwards he will let you go from here, and when he lets you go, you will, he will drive you away completely. So God is telling Moses exactly what's going to happen. So that tells us that nothing that happens in the Passover story took God by surprise. God planned it. God did it. In fact, uh, I don't know if you guys remember because it was, uh, a lot of you probably weren't even here because it was several years ago, I preached through the plagues and each one of the plagues is an assault on an identifiable Egyptian God. The Egyptians worshiped frogs. God said, you like frogs? I'm going to give you some frogs. The Egyptians worshiped the sun. So God said, you think that the sun is a god and it can control things? Boom! There is no sun. So the plagues worked through the Egyptian pantheon of gods. And each time a plague fell on the nation of Israel, it was God declaring that your gods are nothing and I am God. And so God tells Moses, one more plague, and we're going to be done. And so God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh first. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girls, who, who is behind the hand mill. Which, that's an interesting little, and this is completely aside and for free, that um, if you were just rich enough that you could buy one slave, you wouldn't have all of the uh, uh, accoutrements and stuff so that they could, you would have a grist meal. You would have just a little hand mill to grind your wheat. And so it was saying that the poorest family's poorest slave, even down to that family who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cows, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So Moses goes and tells Pharaoh, God's about to teach you a lesson. And apparently he got very exercised as he told, because he said he went out from there mad. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. I've always, and I I just, again, for free, want to point out, It's interesting to me that God always says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then later will say Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so the question is always, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did God harden it or did Pharaoh harden it? And the answer to the question is yes. (laughs) To the Hebrew writer, there's always a primary and a secondary cause for everything that happens. Throughout the Old Testament, the idea is is that if anything happens, the primary cause is really immaterial. Uh, I'm sorry, the secondary cause is really immaterial. The primary cause is God. And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart. The primary cause is God. The secondary cause is Pharaoh being stubborn. And God used his stubbornness to do exactly what he would want to do. And we have the privilege of being able to look back across time and see that God was hardening Pharaoh's heart so that ultimately he would get the maximum amount of glory. Because if Pharaoh had just, after the first plague, said, all right, y'all get out, we wouldn't have this story. And this story we will see today screams of the atonement of Jesus. And so now here we sit some four or 5,000 years later, and we can look back and see how God magnified and glorified himself. I'm sure... For Moses and the children of Israel, it wasn't a pleasant experience at that time. But God was concerned primarily about his own glory. So, then Moses turns and talks to Israel. And he says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Tell me you can't see Jesus in this. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. So on the 10th day they go get the lamb, and they keep it for the 14th day. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the house in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And in this manner shall you eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both male and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a beautiful picture of what faith is. They didn't understand everything that God was doing. The faith was them listening to what God spoke to them through, their serv- through God's servant Moses Their faith was them walking outside with that bucket of blood and painting it on the lentils. Do you think that any of them, as they heard the whales start coming across Egypt that night, might have gone and hugged their firstborn a little bit tighter and been a little bit afraid, been a little bit confused on how God was doing this and what He was doing? But it didn't matter because they had obeyed. And the issue at hand with their faith is the object of their faith. And the object of their faith was the Word of God as passed to them through Moses. And we need to remember that, that the object of our faith is the Word of God and our faith is in God and God will do what He said He would do. Our faith isn't in our ability, our ability to serve God. Our faith isn't in us. Our faith isn't in this church. By faith, God help us if it is, isn't in me our faith is in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he will do what he said he would do. And remember, we, 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 I will always hammer this point that faith is our belief in action. If they had just said, yeah, God's going to do what he said he's going to do, I believe that. And they sat in their house, their firstborn would have died. The faith was walking outside in the action of putting that blood over the lintel in the doorpost. That was faith. Faith is the movement of doing what God said He would do and acting on it. So Moses called all the Israels of Egypt, uh, all the elders of Israel, and said to them, "Go and select lambs." So they did what God said. They, they got the lambs, they took some hyssop, they dipped it in the blood, they touched it on the lentils and the doorpost with the blood that's in the base, basin. and God did what He said He would do. Now, I want us to look closely at this, this, because this is where the idea of the angel of death comes from. Uh, I think it's verse 20, looking at 12, um, says for the, verse 23, let's start there. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. Now, notice again, we talked about this two weeks ago, whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible, that is say, using God's proper name in the Hebrew, Yahweh, which the, 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 a Jewish reader would never have read. If he got, was reading this text out loud, when he got to where it said the Lord, he would have said Adonai instead of Yahweh. But... Um, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow. Now, my ESV says the destroyer. Dad, you're reading from a King James. Somebody's reading from a King James. What does your King James say? The destroyer. Does anybody have a CEV? I didn't think so. It actually says angel of death. That's the only place where we have that descriptor. Every other place, the person who's moving, there's no, the words angel of death are nowhere in this text. Even though a, a, a publication as austere as the British Library refers to God sent the angel of death, we've all heard it our whole lives. If you go out and Google, for, as I did uh, yesterday looking for images to put on the face page post, all kinds of creepy paintings for, for since the 14th century of this creepy looking angel that went around killing people somehow, that's not what the text says. Look closely at chapter 12 and every time it says Yahweh is the one moving, God's the one doing the work. The Lord will pass over the door. You will observe this right as a statute for you forever. And when you come to the land, that who will provide? The Lord will provide. All The actor in this story, there ain't no angel of death. It's God who's the actor. Verses 29, at midnight. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and herds. So look in your Bible at midnight. Who struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt? The Lord God did it. Now, There is no, nothing, the Bible is silent that there's a physical actor, that there's a person that's moving from house to house. It doesn't say that. That's just something we've kind of developed as we've retold this story. How God did it, I don't know. Was there a secondary actor other than God? I don't know. The text doesn't say But we do know, if there is a physical manifestation of of God, who is that? We've talked about it a lot. It's Jesus. And so if there is God in physical form here, we know from John chapter 4, but the hour is coming now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Any physical manifestation of Yahweh is, in fact, a Christophany. It's Jesus. Now, in Colossians, we we read this about what the story, or, or just about the old testament in general but it's something i want us to see therefore let no one pass judgment on you on questions of food and drink or regards to festivals or new moons or sabbath you had in the church in colossi you had these believers who were some of them were, were saved out of the jewish faith some of them were saved out of the um I, they were were um gentiles i, tried, I had to think of what i was there for a minute and so there were some arguments. Do we obey the pa- follow the Passover? Do we, do we keep the festivals? Do we follow the moons as they're mentioned in the Bible? And in Colossians it says these are shadows of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So if, just like if you look down right here, I can see a shadow of me. That shadow is a representation of me. It kind of sort of looks like me. It's not quite as good looking, but... Um, The shadow is a reflection of what is the substance. And so, in this particular story, as God is building it out, the story is a story about Jesus. You see, because I know that death is coming. Whether or not I'm a Christian, whether or not I I go to church, I know for a fact that death is coming. Everybody's going to die. Secular our, our writers have said for throughout the centuries that no one survives life. It's not going to happen. Everyone from William Shakespeare on up, life is but a tale. We know that we're going to die, and we know our humankind knows that there's something bigger than him at work. Amen. I've said. I've, I've had the privilege to, to travel a, a good bit. And every country I've ever been in has temples. They have places of worship. Humankind, I remember distinctly standing in Ankara uh, five times a day as that call to prayer would echo across the city. And you would hear that. You could hear the mic as the, 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 the guy got in the minaret. And you would hear that. I And the city would get silent. And in my mind, I could picture someone groping in the dark, feeling for God. Where is he? Yet we are enlightened. We know who he is. He has shown us in his word who he is. And so we, like those children of Israel, know that there's a God and that we know that we have sinned against Him. All of humanity knows that we can't live up to our own moral standard. I've never, in witnessing to anybody, had to convince them that they were a sinner. I've never had to do that. I'm always, I always find that when I ask people, if you, if, if you were to die tonight and you stood before God and He asked you, why should I let you into heaven? Almost always they say, I'm a pretty good person. And they, we always compare ourselves to other people. I'm a pretty good person. I've actually had the opportunity to witness in a prison, standing with somebody, I would say, why would God let you into heaven? And the guy says, I'm a pretty good person. I've never killed anybody. And so it made a light bulb off in my head. I found somebody that was a murderer. I asked him. And he said, I'm a pretty good person. I've never hurt a child. You see, we are always going to find somebody that we think is worse off than us. But we know in our hearts that we don't rise to our own standard. Our conscience condemns us, is what the Bible says. Our own conscience rises up and says, you are doing wrong. You're sinning. I know that there's a God. I know that I cannot stand in front of Him because I know that I'm a sinner. And I know there's nothing that I can do about it. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that even in religions where I have to have lists, in fact, I would say that there are two religions in all of the world. There's selfism and biblical Christianity. And selfism says you've got to do something to earn your way to God. You yourself have to step up and do something. And so all the other religions, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's Islam, all just have different lists of what you've got to do to earn your way to God. But see, the whole thing about that is, is that if I work the list, then I'm the one who gets the glory, right? I remember very well with, uh, meeting with Mahmoud of, Muslim friend of mine, and asking him, okay, tell, I'm going to tell you how I think a Muslim goes to heaven, and you tell me if that's right. And so I just, I walked him through. So you've got a, a jinn and a, a Malek on your shoulders. You've got a good angel and a bad angel. The bad angel's writing down my good bad works. The good angel's writing down my good works. On the judgment day, they'll put my good works and my bad works on a scale, and if my good works outweigh my bad, I make it into paradise, right? Right. So, Mahmoud, who gets the glory in that system? I do. Because I earned it. So, Mama, let me explain to you the biblical system. The biblical system is that I'm saved from God. Who's the destroyer in this text? God is the destroyer. I justly, rightly deserve God's wrath. And so I'm saved, ultimately... And I, 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 whenever people come to me and say, I want to get baptized, I'll say, okay, you say you're getting saved. If I, if I said I was saved out of a burning building, what was I saved from? Well, you are saved from fire. If I fell out of a boat and the Coast Guard came and saved me, what am I saved from? Well, you're saved from drowning. So if you're telling me you're saved, what are you saved from? And almost always, especially in the South, people say the devil, sin, hell, and all of those are not wrong answers, they're just secondary cause answers. Ultimately, I'm saved from God because I deserve His wrath. What I deserve is to be cast into hell. And so I'm saved from God, I'm saved by whom? God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I'm saved from God. I'm saved by God. And Paul says over and over and over and over and over and over again that I'm saved to the glory of God. That any good works that I do aren't because I'm a good person but because God is doing a work in me and through me. And so any good thing that I do, I do because of what he's done in me. So he gets the glory. So I'm saved by From God, by God, to the glory of God. Mahmoud, who gets the glory in that story? God does. So I asked Mahmoud, and I asked several people who were in Islam, tell me from what you know about God, not what I've told you about God, but from what you know in your heart about God, which system would God pick? The one that you get the glory, or the one that he gets the glory? And with Mahmoud, he said, I got to go. And he left. So here the children of Israel knew there was nothing they could do. They couldn't save themselves from this angel that was passing through. They just had to hear what God said, trust that it was truth, believe it, and then in faith go and act on it and put that blood on the lintel. What if they doubted themselves in the middle of the night and they had the blood on the lintel? Would they die? No. God passed over them because of the blood, not because of them. And so another reason why that's a beautiful picture of Jesus is because it's not because of me, because I can't earn it. Some of you have come to me and said, you don't understand what I've done in my life. God can't forgive me of that. Well, if it was about you, you're right. But it ain't about you. It's about the glory of God. And if God, can, if God is saying to the principalities and powers, as the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, that the purpose of the story of salvation is so that he could teach the principalities and powers of his glory and his majesty and his grace, then the fact that I was a wicked sinner glorifies him more. Look, I could even save some loser like Tom Harrison. And so my faith is in the blood, not in my actions. And so this beautiful, beautiful picture is of Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. And this final thing that is just so beautiful that just ties it up. And then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Some people look at this and say, who does God think he is killing all these people? He's the one that makes that decision. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because he has a robe dipped in blood, he's earned it. So if there is a person who's the angel of death, his name is Jesus. I know that's a shocking thing to say, so, but all of that built build up is he is the one that takes life and gives it. He is the one that all things were created through him and for him, and for him all things consist. And so I would beg you today, if you have not, to throw your, yourself at his feet. And call Him Lord. Confess with your mouth that He's Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. That's what salvation is. And so we see that in this beautiful picture. Father God, we thank You for this story. We thank You for the way You work. And we thank You most of all for Your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen.